0: Hey, y'all, Sam here. You are hearing me from the back of my Prius somewhere outside of Phoenix, driving back to L.A. with my dog, Zora. Every year, I take a long, leisurely road trip to San Antonio, Texas to spend Thanksgiving with my family. And every year on that trip, I listen to a lot of podcasts, including this podcast. And the thing about all those podcasts is uh, they don't pay for themselves. So I'm here right now in the back of this Toyota to ask you to give in support of public radio to keep this show coming to you each and every week with conversations that make you think, with new voices and perspectives, with an approach to the news of the week that we hope doesn't leave you depressed. That is not possible without support from you. So please take a minute right now. Go to donate.npr.org sam. Support this show by supporting your local public radio station. Again, that link is donate.npr.org slash Sam. All right. Also, just like last year, we have a little friendly competition going on with all the other podcasts here at NPR to see who can drive the most donations over this next month or so. Um, In the words of Rihanna, I came to win, to fight, to conquer, to thrive. Help us come out on Donate.npr.org slash Sam. Zora the dog thanks you in advance. Aunt Betty does too. Zora, you want to say anything? Not a thing. Okay. Thanks, y'all. From NPR, I'm Sam Sanders. It's been a minute. Today, my guest is comedian and writer Guy Branum. And... I talked to him in front of a live audience. I had the privilege of devouring Guy's latest book recently. It's called My Life as a Goddess, and it has been just the perfect bit of counterprogramming to these recent news cycles from hell. This book is everything Guy is, hilarious, whip-smart, insightful, and equipped with this encyclopedic knowledge of more books and movies and music than any 12 women or men. Uh, but Guy is also more than an author. He has a law degree, but he's also hosted a game show. He's worked behind the scenes in Hollywood, writing for shows like The Mindy Project and Billy on the Street. But you've also seen him in front of the camera as staff homosexual on Chelsea Lately, and even as Natalie Portman's sassy gay friend in the movie No Strings Attached. Those are just a few of the ways a guy has made me laugh for years, but he also makes me think. His culture, writing, and political commentary has been featured in Slate, the New York Times, and New York Magazine. And Guy is changing the boys' club of comedy through his writing with every essay. As a warning to listeners, there's some language in this chat that you might find offensive, but it is integral to Guy talking about his experience. We taped the show in October at the KPCC Crawford Family Forum in Pasadena. I'm excited to share it with you now. Uh, Here's Guy Branham.
1: I'm at the Crawford Family Forum. I've, like, I've listened to so many events that took place here, and to finally know what this temple of public broadcasting really looks like. Look at it. Very exciting. Look at it.
0: It's amazing.
1: How are you feeling? I'm feeling good. Yeah. I mean, yes, Los Angeles is not being hot the way that it normally is, so I am only sweating a normal amount for me, <laughs> not an extraordinary amount. I love it. I love it.
0: I am glad that our our styles are matching tonight. So I frantically DM'd the guy on Twitter this morning, and I was like, what are you wearing? Because the last... You said,
1: what are you wearing tonight? If you had just said, what are you wearing? <laughs> it would have been a different response that would have been very and a different. different conversation.
0: Yes, yes. Um, I said, what are you wearing tonight?
1: And an evolving friendship. Yes, totally, totally.
0: <laughs> um, all right, so the book. I want to give it its fair due. It is called My
1: Life as a Goddess. It is part memoir, part... How would you describe it? Um, like, well, the title calls it A Memoir Through in Popular Culture. And one of the things, like, during the course of, of writing it, I realized that as a gay man, like, there weren't narratives or stories about people like me, mm. and I didn't necessarily know how to write stories with me at the center of them. When you think about, yes, we have gay people in media, but they are, by and large... Sidekicks. Sidekicks. Uh, and it can be, in too many ways, easy for me to think of myself as a sidekick. So I really... Uh, When I talk about issues from my life, whether it is, you know, being fat or loving trivia, I look at the way that sort of culture influenced how I see that and how I see myself. Yeah. Now, there is a reason that the the word goddess is in the title.
0: It's because of a story that you liked from Greek mythology. Tell us a story.
1: Okay. It is a story that I tell my friends with with great regularity. Um, When I was, like, in third grade, I, I found this library book, and it, like, had... Um, a a retelling of the story of of the birth of uh, Apollo and Artemis, the sun and the moon. And it's basically that their mom had been cursed by Hera because she had messed around with Zeus, who was married to Hera, cursed that she could find no safe place on the planet. In the sea, on the land, nowhere could could she find comfort. Uh, And she was, like, hot and sweaty one summer day, and she came to, like, a pond, and she, like, knelt down to get some water. Um... And the people there were like, hey, where's your husband? And she, like, didn't respond because she didn't have a husband. Uh, And they started making fun of her for being an odd mother, and then they kicked around in the water and made it muddy so that she couldn't get water. And then she walked away so hot, so pissed off, like, angry at the world for everything. And then she remembered that she was a goddess? And she turned around, and she turned all of the people into frogs. Um, (laughs) And so that's, for me, what the book is about, is, like... It's like remember-
0: frogs, all of you.
1: But I mean, these things are are of a piece with each other. It is sort of my understanding that in a, remembering that you are powerful, like in any situation, you do have powers, you do have abilities. There's stuff that you can do to change the game, and it's not gonna fix it all of the time. But also, you're not powerless. What I hear you saying is, the hero lies in you. I guess so. Yes. The heroine lies in you. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. I
0: want to make you read a little bit of the book in which you are describing this story and how it applies to you in your life. It really was poignant for me, and I liked it, so I'm going to make you read it. I uh, highlighted it and put a star next to it for you.
1: Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I'm not supposed to be a goddess. I'm very fat. I'm bald. I have a faggy voice. My family is poor. My parents are uneducated. I dress like a wet three-year-old. As all of you can see now, (laughs) I am not supposed to like myself, and I'm certainly not supposed to think that I should matter. The world has spent a lot of time telling me that in the past 30 or so years. I often listened, because we all listen. The world is mostly full of fine facts and good lessons, but some of those facts and lessons were built to keep you down. And I got kept down for decades. Then I remembered that I was a goddess. I may not always feel like it, but I have powers. I am an amazing dancer. I'm quite ridiculously smart, I'm strong, I'm funny, babies like me, I have very strong research skills, I make passingly good Punjabi okra, I have a law degree, I sparkle on panel shows, as you guys can see here, (laughs) I'm very good at listening when I try. It's not amazing, it's not lightning bolts or control of the sea, I can't turn myself into a swan and have my way with whatever man I like, but it's enough for me.
0: So, fun fact, I did a lot of the reading of your book on the train going from downtown to Culver City. And when I started- Public
1: transportation in Los Public Angeles? transportation, It's bro.
0: unthinkable. I do it. But I digress. I'm saying on the train, I'm reading the book, and I get to this part, and I'm on the train just like, I'm a goddess too. And the people next to me are looking over and I was like, you're a goddess too, man. <laughs> it was great. It was great. Um, a That's big, lovely. Oh, yeah. Um, In the book, you talk a a lot about the place you are from, Yuba City, outside of Yuba City. But Uh you say it is in no way what you think it's supposed to be.
1: Yeah, when people think of California, they think of Southern California. They think of, like, surf and bottle blondes and movie stars and that kind of thing. I'm not from there. I'm from Northern California. When you think of Northern California, you think of lesbian sous chefs and vineyards and that's not where I'm from either. <laughs> like, <laughs> the thing is, every, like, everyone here is Californian, so you've all driven up the five. So you've all seen sort of like the dry, sad middle of California. And pass through that part on the five where it literally smells like manure. Yeah. I mean, you know. This is the price we pay for our lovely meals, okay? <laughs> California, like, I'm so proud of California and its agricultural production. Um, like, but also, it's a terrible place to be
0: from. <laughs> you know, so the Napa City was not—it's it, farm town, but not farm town that you think even.
1: I mean, yeah, it's not the like fun, upscale, like charming, like vineyard town in Napa where your friend got married. Like, it's just—it's the grapes of wrath 80 years later. <laughs> so award-winning. Uh, yeah, no, the <laughs> like um, the terrifying thing about my hometown is that like literally. All of the white people came from Arkansas or Oklahoma in like the 30s. So people still have, like young people still have accents. Um, One of my younger cousins, like he was using the word reckon and yonder in California (laughs) because he spent too much time with my grandma from Arkansas. It's horrible. I say I say those words. You're from Texas. It's allowed. I know. We're supposed to breezily talk like newscasters here. (laughs) You
0: paint these vivid pictures of your parents, who the entire book I was just itching to meet and talk with. Uh huh. Describe your mom and your dad for us.
1: Um, My mom um, is an angry older Jewish lady uh, whose family is from Arkansas. So you can imagine the levels of fear and anxiety that go on in that woman. Like, she's always holding her purse as though she may need to flee something. (laughs) Uh, And I get that. Um, But she was also, like, very intellectually and culturally curious. I think she had a, like, even though her family were Jews from Arkansas, there was a little bit of a sense of, like, hey we don't need to be as willfully ignorant as the rest of the people around here. Like, pick up a book. And she shared stuff with you. She shared stuff with me all the time. There's this wonderful scene where you talk about how she, like, snuck you the graduate. Yeah, she just, like, walked in with the graduate and was like, watch this. You'll learn something. Um, (laughs) When I was, like, 16, and and she did so much to sort of make me somebody who would desperately want to move away from her and break her heart. Um, Mm. And then my dad... Was, like, the opposite. (laughs) Uh, my dad was a construction worker um, who was raised Southern Baptist and sort of didn't question the world of like, patriarchal, rural, conservative life, and he didn't understand me. And like, as time has gone on, I've better understood, you don't necessarily want to be the guy on the construction site whose son knows a lot about the Oscars. You know? Mm. Like, that's not really something you can brag about to the other cement masons.
0: There's that. There's that, but you have this wonderful part of the book where you talk about how, with your father and with that dynamic, you felt like you knew that this man could love you and almost hate you at the same time.
1: Uh, Yeah, I I think anyone we have very strong relationships with, we have complex relationships with, and it's a little hard for me. I I lost my dad, like, uh, two years ago, and, you know, before I, I started writing the book... And so it was this question of, how do I address my dad in a book that he would have been angry at me for writing? Like, my dad would have been very angry at me for trying to talk about my life in a way that was honest for for me. Um, And so the dedication of the book is to my father, Larry Michael Branham, who would have hated this book. I love that I got to write this book, but it feels a little bit unfair that my dad wasn't around to be pissed off at me about it (laughs) and, like, not talk to me for a year. This should have ruined a Thanksgiving. (laughs) Alas. Yeah. Come to my house.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Time for a quick break. We'll be right back with comedian and writer Guy Branham. You're listening to It's Been a Minute live at the Crawford Family Forum at KPCC in Pasadena. We'll be right back.
2: This message comes from NPR sponsor, Google Home Hub. You know when you're cooking dinner, but you're interrupted by the doorbell ringing? That's why there's Google Home Hub. It works with your Nest Hello video doorbell to show you who's at the door without actually going to the door. And you can just say, hey Google, be right there, and it'll respond to whomever's at the door. That's help at a glance with Google Home Hub, available now at the Google Store and leading retailers. Nest Hello required. Whether it's athlete protests, the Muslim travel ban, gun violence, school
0: reform, or just the music that's giving you life right now, race is the subtext to so much of the American story. And on Code Switch, we make that subtext text. You can listen to us on NPR One or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back with a very special live edition of It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders at the Crawford Family Forum here at KPCC in Pasadena. We're here talking with comedian and writer Guy Branum on how he went from small town California to hosting his own talk show in Hollywood. You write in the book, Yuba City doesn't make sense, but neither do I. How did you not make sense? Oh, I as mean, as a kid,
1: <laughs> uh, I was creepily enormous and effeminate, and in this little farm town where I was like constantly, I did not care about anything that was in the world around me. I didn't want to know how an automobile worked. I did not want to understand I how... I love that worked. you called it an automobile. <laughs> exactly. No one in Yuba City would call it an automobile. Also, it wasn't an automobile. It was a Ford F-150. And my dad was constantly trying to teach me to fix. Like, I didn't care about dove hunting. I was just desperately trying to figure out, like, um, you know, who Queen Anne was and what her deal was. Um, and so... Pe- like, people didn't know what to do with me, and I didn't know what to do with myself other than just read. <laughs> yeah, and you read a lot.
0: Which book do you still love the most? Do you still think about the most from reading it as a, as oh, a kid? Oh, as a kid? Yeah. From the
1: Mixed-Up Thiles of Mrs. Baisley, Frank Frankweiler. Absolutely. I've never uh, heard of that book. Oh, Sam. Okay,
0: I'll let myself out. All right, most,
1: <laughs> most, of your, most of your young adult adventures, people are going out, they are going to f- face a bear, or be in the wilderness. From the Mixed of Files, Mrs. Baisley Frankweiler is about a sophisticated young lady named Claudia Kincaid <laughs> from like Jersey or Connecticut, and she's Mad at her parents for not respecting her enough. So she gets her younger brother to run away with her to the Metropolitan Museum of Art and they live in the Metropolitan oh, Museum I did of read Art it. and they collect coins from the fountain to yes, live off of. I I absolutely. And Wasn't then they, love they love solve it. an art mystery. I read that book. Yes, of course. It's amazing. <laughs> I'm really proud of your opinion on that. <laughs> and like reading that, that book, I really was just like, oh my God. I want to be that girl. Like, I yeah. I want to be sophisticated like her. I want to know how New York works. <laughs> it doesn't work. <laughs>
0: <laughs> oh. When did you feel like you were able to start being that girl?
1: Oh, uh, it is a journey that I am still processing to this day. Yeah. I, it took me a long time. Like, I didn't come out of the closet until I was in law school. Like, I was at Berkeley for four long years. At Berkeley. At Berkeley. San Francisco is right across the bay. And also, Berkeley is Berkeley. Not yeah. even going to San Francisco. <laughs> and I I still was not comfortable with myself. And then I went to law school in Minnesota because where do you want to be gay? San Francisco or Minneapolis? <laughs> Actually, Minneapolis is real fun. <laughs> um, and so, like, that took me a long time. I think starting stand-up was, like, a really big moment of being able to say, like... Um, my perspective matters. Like, I was so busy being quiet so that I wouldn't, like, anger old men from Arkansas when I was little Mm. that the minute I sort of got out into the world, I just started talking and never shut up. (laughs) Um, Yeah, but I, I, I also feel like being able to, like, treasure the places and the things that made you while still not being defined by them or constrained by them is, like, a tension that we're all figuring out. Are you yourself yet? Probably not. You're probably doing like four things that your mom demands of you. I have so many toiletries in my home that my mom just gives me. She is constantly giving me deodorant that she bought on sale that I don't need. And it is in my home and I have no space for it. That's me not being that girl.
0: (laughs) I love in the book the way you talk about being fat, the way you talk about being gay, because it is not just this simple pat surface kind of body positivity, everything is great, everyone is great. You talk about feeling conflicted about your identities at points, and I want to go through two parts of the book in which you do that. When you talk about what it means to sound gay, mm-hmm. you, um, you've said that you hate your voice and the voice of other gay men, but you also said in the book, we all have to sound faggy so that we can find each other, yeah. which I found beautiful. Yeah, And I like that you express feelings of identity not being
1: afraid to have more than one opinion on it. Behaving as though the constructions that the world presented to us for most of our lives aren't there is just anti-intellectual. We can't behave. We were all alive in 1995, or not all of us, some of us. Uh, Let's say we were all alive in 2005. It was, the world was still pretty homophobic then. Like half of this country still thought gay marriage shouldn't exist and thought gay people were probably gross. And you internalize a lot of that, and I know that when I was young, I I had so much fear around people who were presenting gayness, which is really weird because I was presenting gayness even before I was gay. Um, But I also think that you know it is beautiful that because we do like have the option of visually passing as as not gay, you know. The ways that it, we can be audibly gay are like beautiful choices to do something dangerous so mm-hmm. that we can find each other and create culture and hopefully like quality sex. <laughs> yeah. Well and it's like the voice it is, it, is, it is
0: portrayed in the culture as a sign of weakness but actually it's a, is a fine act of bravery. Right you and like,
1: there's also just this way that like straight dudes are always like what, what do they have to talk like that? And, like, I feel like. Why do they have to talk like that? Right, exactly. But it's also like anytime you say about any group you're not a member of, what, what do they have to do? There is a reason you just haven't learned about it. Like, you just haven't thought about it, you haven't figured it out, you haven't like giving people the benefit of just imagining what their lives might be
0: like what is the feedback to your voice from people that see you on tv and hear you
1: in podcasts like do you hear from people about your voice well i mean the thing is is like i am old and i have been on tv for a while so it has changed during that time like when i was first on tv on a regular basis on chelsea lately um i would always get like two responses uh in comments and they were they shouldn't have a gay guy like that on he acts too gay he sounds too gay not all gay guys are like that. Why do they have to get, have a gay like that? And then it would be, he's too fat. Gay guys aren't fat like that. Why do you have a gay guy who's fat? Um, and that has sort of changed as time has gone on, and we have more representation of queer people in media, and there is less uh, of a sort of like hunger and need to see someone like yourself, and you're able to see somebody who's queer and isn't exactly like you but still enjoy them, and feel a little represented in a way, yeah. you know? Yeah, yeah. You know, speaking about
0: being fat and talking about that in the book, I'm so glad that you did more than just say the thing that everyone is supposed to say, which is love your body, whatever your body is. Like, I get that, but, I, but you, you gave me more in this discussion in the book, and you talked really thoughtfully about how even when fat people are on screen, it is a representation in service of skinny people? You said, quote, our narratives about conquering fatness aren't about saving fat people, it's about letting thin people feel like they're already saved, members of the chosen people.
1: Yeah. That Um, was real smart. I I just, I think that we have a a great deal, we moralize weight. We moralize weight so that we have to know that if a person is, is fat, that they are doing something wrong. And they can, we can watch them be noble on The Biggest Loser or This Is Us and be doing everything that they can to unfat themselves. Um, but if they are still fat, we know that they haven't done that enough. And you guys who aren't fat get to feel like there is something that's kind of good about you. You are doing something a little bit noble by managing to be less fat than me.
0: Yeah, and that ain't fair.
1: I mean, is life fair? Uh, I, I also just think that it was important for me to be able to like articulate that, because the world had sort of like um, sent me a lot of messages about my self-worth and behavior around my fatness, and I, like, it was important for me to be able to say like, hey, I don't have to let that into, m- Like, I can push that out of my brain a little bit. I can understand that at the end of the day, there are things in my life that are more important than me being less fat. I don't know what the right best answers for anyone else's bodies are, and I don't know what the right best answers for my body are, but also, this is the size that I have been my entire life. And imagining that there's some magical future where that is not true, and that I should be delaying aspects of my life until that comes true is ridiculous. I'll... Thank you for your claps, but I don't need them. Um, (laughs) I'll be on TV now. I'll have sex now. I'll do the things that I want to do now, and if somebody else is bothered by the appearance of me, okay, don't watch or have sex with me. There are other people who will. (laughs) Mic drop. Have a great night, guys. We did it.
0: I first saw you on the internet when you wrote uh, this really thoughtful essay about the world of comedy in light of uh, Louis C.K. and his dumpster fire trashness. Um, And you talked about how the culture of comedy... Sets up people like Louis C.K. to do Louis C.K. stuff, and you talked specifically about this idea of the table in the comedy club. I want you to set that up. Tell us what the table is, and I want to unpack that essay with you.
1: Um, so, at every at every comedy club, there there is a table where like um, the the high ranking dude comics sit around uh, and you know shoot the crap uh, after the show. They s- stand in the back during the show. Famously in the opening credits of, of Louie's show uh, he, on, on FX, he would walk past the comics table at the comedy store. And when we represent that, we always represent a bunch of dudes. When we, straight dudes. Straight dudes. Like when we um, you know, have our biggest and greatest comics sit around and talk about what comedy should be, it is always straight dudes. And the fact that this power structure, like, doesn't have space for women or, or gay men means that the, the path up is not built for us as well, that it is a, a system that is built so guys who look like them can become future thems. And I'm tired of that. And it was, I just realized how much I had spent my comedy career trying to prove to those dudes that I was good enough and funny enough to be taken seriously. And if all of us are constantly trying to do that, it's not gonna change anything, and 85% of comics are still gonna be straight dudes.
0: Yeah, well, and you said so brutally, and I, I had never thought about it this way, you said that sexual harassment is one of the tools that these men, these straight comics, use to remind other comics that your status, that their status is provisional.
1: Right. It is, it is a signal. Harassment is a signal of the hierarchy. And, like, the thing is, is, I am not a person who should be publicly expressing a lot of opinions about the way sexual harassment affects women. I am not a woman. But I think as... You're a goddess. <laughs> uh, which is different. Um, <laughs> but as we have been so bracingly reminded recently, like... Sexual harassment, sexual assault, sexual violence is being used all the time to fill women with fear and marginalization. And just sort of realizing in the wake of all of these things that had been rumors about Louis C.K. being substantiated by the New York Times that I was part of a business that was doing this to women Mm. who were working really hard and trying really hard to be the best comics that they could It made me mad at myself like it made me so angry um, that comedy a thing that I love was so systemically telling women that they didn't matter and it was also a reminder that like these tools and similar tools are used to remind people like me that we don't matter can anyone here name like a very famous gay male stand-up comedian that didn't happen accidentally Like, uh, it isn't just happenstance, it's not gay guys didn't want to do that. You go to RuPaul's Drag Race, you go to, you know, like, funny novelists, funny writers, there are gay dudes all over the place. Stand-up has made itself a place where people like me aren't welcome. And there are a couple of options in that situation, and God knows, wouldn't I be more noble if I just tried really hard and worked very hard and got half as far, but instead, I whine loudly Uh, and write things on the internet.
0: Love it. Love it.
1: It's time for a break.
0: (laughs) Thank you, Guy Branham. We'll be right back with my guest today, comedian and writer Guy Branham. You're listening to It's Been a Minute, live at the Crawford Family Forum here at KPCC in Pasadena. We'll be right back.
2: The following message comes from our sponsor, Capital One. Would you know if someone applied for credit using your social security number? If not, listen to Joe Witchurch, head of the CreditWise app, talk about the new SSN tracker his team recently released. While identity fraud is
0: something everyone needs to be worried about, we want to make it easy and seamless for them to become aware of anybody attempting to use their identity without their knowledge or permission.
2: CreditWise is free for everyone, whether you're a Capital One customer or not. You can find CreditWise in your app or Play Store now.
0: Hey y'all, Sam Sanders here again in the car on the side of the tin somewhere in Arizona to ask you a few questions. First, are you enjoying this episode with Guy Branham? I sure hope so. Second, have you enjoyed any of my previous chats with authors and actors and writers and thinkers and journalists uh, that we bring you here on the show all the time? Uh, third, If you answered yes to either of those previous two questions, would you consider supporting the work that goes into each and every episode of this show? Would you head to donate.npr.org slash Sam to give to public radio? It's donate.npr.org slash Sam. All right. I'm getting back on the road. I'm going to let you get back to the show. Enjoy. We are talking about comedy, but uh-huh. you've done so much stuff, I want you to like rapid fire tell me all the Hollywood jobs you've had. Go, go, go.
1: Okay, I had to write jokes for Joan Rivers on uh, Fashion Police. Uh, I had to write not jokes for Ashton Kutcher on um, Punked. Um, um Faster, faster, faster. I, I, I had to interview people um, in a funny way about renewable energy like two weeks ago in Las Vegas and I made too much money for it. Um... <laughs> I wrote for Billy on the Street. I wrote for the Mindy Project. I wrote for uh, Awkward on MTV. I wrote for Another Period on Comedy Central. Uh, I wrote uh, for a video game show called X-Play, where I had to pretend to know things about video games and sports. Um, And like, so many other jobs that I- Keep going. You were in in movies, you were on TV shows, you were on (laughs) Chelsea, you were on- Go, 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 go. I was recurring on the show Partners on CBS, but the show was canceled before I got to be (laughs) on. I played Natalie Portman's sassy gay friend uh, uh, in uh, No Strings Attached. you um, the resident gay on Chelsea oh, Hill? On Chelsea Lately. I, I wrote for Chelsea Lately. I wrote for Totally Biased with W. Kamau Bell, and I appeared on it. And, like, the thing about... L- your podcast, keep going. Oh, I have out. a podcast. It's called um, Pop Rocket, and you should listen to it. Yes. Uh, um, yeah, I mean, the thing is, is that, like... You have to have a lot of hustles to make it through this town. Um, but it's, I couldn't do it. It's fun. You like it? I mean, it's annoying, and I'm very bad at maintaining a schedule, so I fail at it on a regular basis. Uh, as the people who listen to Pop Rocket can attest, sometimes I'm just not there. Um, <laughs> um, but, like, there is something nice about getting to do a variety of things. As a non-traditionally looking gay man... Uh, the like a lot of the industry has been like you're behind the scenes. You just write things, and having a variety of jobs means I get to do a variety of things. Like as soon as I get annoyed with having to be in makeup, I'm then you know at a writer's room. And the minute I'm tired of just being in a writer's room, uh, I'm at the Crawford family forum talking yeah. to people. <laughs> I love it. I love it. We're
0: going to go to Q&A, but I first want to bring us back into the book for a little bit. Okay. I am going to make you read a bit more about uh, your description of the popular culture of My Best Friend's Wedding and how it speaks to... Clap
1: for My Best Friend's Wedding. Clap for it. That's what you should clap to for. I wish I had
0: had you watching this movie with me when I was a kid, watching it with my mother because I would have grown up to be such a more self-aware and better gay <laughs> had I seen the film
1: the way that you saw it. But I didn't see it that way when I saw it the first time. The first time I saw it, I was just like, I like this movie. And then I spent <laughs> the following 20 years trying to understand better why I liked that movie. Yes,
0: and you lay it out so beautifully. First, I want to give you, you to give us some plot setup for those who haven't watched it. They're dead to me. But tell us who the characters are and who Rupert Everett's character is. Okay.
1: Uh, my Best Friend's Wedding is about a woman named Jules, who uh, is played by Julia Roberts, who has agreed with this dude who is either Dermot Mulroney or Dylan McDermott. No one knows. Um, <laughs> they, if they turn 28 and are unmarried, they're going to get married. And he calls her, and she thinks that he's going to be bringing that up. And even though she doesn't really like this guy, she likes that he likes her. Uh, and he announces that he is getting married to this woman named Kimmy, who is played by Cameron Diaz. Uh, and that he wants her to come be his, his best man. Um, and she realizes, like, oh, damn, I'm in love with this guy. I want him to love me. Um, and now I am losing him. So she goes and tries to break up the wedding. It is an anti-rom-com. Uh, and she has a sassy gay friend, played by Rupert Everett. Um, who, Who's there to be her beard, almost, in a way? Yeah, he shows up to be her beard, but he, like so magically dances around and on the plot, sort of like reminding all of the straight people that they are ridiculous and there are other ways of life. Um, And I I just think it is a uh, profoundly queer story. And the thing, what you straight people don't think about is no one told us what our lives should look like. Like, Mm. you know, when we were young, we were constantly being told, like, you shouldn't exist and maybe you should go to jail. So like, just being able to be past that is pretty nice for me. But still, no one ever said, oh, your gay first date, what does that look like? Oh, do you get married? Uh, and we're having to figure that stuff out, which is fun. Um, but also, there, there is a lack of these structures. And my best friend's wedding doesn't necessarily show us a path, but it craps on your path, which is important. <laughs>
0: um we're gonna do questions now and we're gonna take a few raise your hand mike holder hello thank you
2: that was a lovely interview guy thanks so much
1: oh thank you that's very sweet
2: my name is chris smith um who are some of your favorite homosexual male comedians you think we should know about
1: oh that's a great question uh james domian uh joel kim booster um, uh, Solomon Giorgio is amazing. He's great. Yeah, both uh, Solomon, uh, Joel, and Julio Torres all have Comedy Central half hours that just came out that you can watch online. Um, uh, Tim Dillon has a, a Netflix fifteen minutes. I think. I think Mateo Lane has a Netflix fifteen minutes. There are really good people out there who are are doing amazing stuff, um, and people are starting to notice now. But, you know, to some extent, the industry isn't re- wasn't ready for that. Like, a lot more quality was being made than uh, people... Like, these people weren't getting managers or agents a while ago because nobody knew what you do with uh, a, a gay guy stand-up. And things are better now. Everything's fixed, you guys. Did it. Nailed it. Yep. Yeah. Also me. You should buy my album. Uh, <laughs> Fable, Available wherever comedy albums are sold. That's right.
0: Amazon. Yes. <laughs> We' got another question coming up.
1: Hi, my name is Shannon Corter, and
2: this has been so delightful. Thank you Thanks so much. For being
1: here. I agree also about burning down the, the table the the cis white straight man's table at the comedy club. But how do we do that? Like do we start our own table until they 're like oh that 's where the cool kids are or i mean that 's really a lot of what 's happening. Um, y- you know uh, when I go to New York, where I want to perform, are the rooms in Brooklyn? where there is queer interesting comedy going on. Here in Los Angeles, so much of the really good comedy that's happening are backyard shows in like Glassell Park or Hancock Park. Like people are creating their own structures and institutions and I think like more power to the people of color and women and queer people who are fighting their way up through the clubs, but I think half of it is just not behaving as those guys, as though those guys are the end all and be all of success that they are the end all and be all of dignity and respect. Like, be doing this so that your female peers respect you as much as you're doing it for the dude peers. You know? Yeah. More questions.
2: Hi, I'm Eileen. Um, so I work with high schoolers, and um, I read your book at really the first week of high sc- of school, um, and it gave me a lot of insight into um, what was happening internally for a lot
1: of the students that I work with who are LG. BT, and it was it, it gave me a deep empathy that really changed my perspective on how to work with these students so if I were to go to them and, and sort of offer them a version of b- my best friend's wedding today for oh. these 15 year olds and 16 year olds what would you suggest that I offer oh that's a great question um, I think uh, two things that spring to mind are the movie Alex um, on it's on Netflix right now and it is like an honest like queer, silly teen comedy that's super funny, but also a lot more honest than something like Love, Simon. And then there was a British show. It was called Beautiful People, and it's about two like 14-year-old gay boys um, just trying to figure out life in the 90s in Britain. And there are musical numbers. And Sign me up. You're, look, they do Tracy Ullman's other single. Are we familiar <laughs> with Tracy Ullman's pop career? because you you know about you don't know about love but the song Sunglasses it's pretty great um, yeah I mean there there is there is so much more culture that just sort of acknowledges that we have queer teenagers and I think the hard part is just feeling as though the things that are going on inside of you aren't things that can be expressed and aren't things that are reflected in, in pop culture at all at the end of the day though they're only going to want to watch weepy things about women so I mean, all about Eve. At the end of the day, (laughs) I mean, all gay culture really can be boiled down to like all about Eve, the color purple, and then sex.
0: (laughs) The holy trinity. It really is. Many, many thanks to my guest this evening, comedian and writer Guy Branham. I had so much fun. Thank you, Guy. Thank you for having me. Thanks to all of you, this lovely, wonderful audience uh, here in person. And also thanks to our listeners at home. The show is produced every week by Brent Bachman and Anjali Sastry. Our fearless editor is Rodana Hochman. And we can do none of this, live stuff like this, without our senior events manager, Joanna Palowska. Uh, special thanks to everyone here at KPCC that made this show happen tonight. John Cohn, managing producer of KPCC in person. Ashley Alvarado, Tony Federico, Daphne Liu, Quincy Surasmith, and Liz Zimmerman. Uh, our director of programming at NPR is Steve Nelson. And I also want to thank all of the volunteers here tonight at KPCC. Herschel Shivadi, Shelley Scanlon, David Abelson, and Lorraine Moreland. Uh, the big boss who signs my paycheck is Anya Grundman. Listeners, we're back in your feeds Friday. Until then, be a goddess. Talk soon.
2: Woo-hoo!